As we uh, lead into Christmas this year, uh, we're going to have a special focus. And this year we're going to be focusing on the miracle of the incarnation. Uh, Incarnation is a a Latin term. Uh, In means in. And uh, caro means flesh. So it simply means in the flesh. And what we celebrate, the foundation of Christmas, is that through the Lord Jesus Christ, God has come in the flesh. Now listen to these words of the great theologian Augustine as he reflects on the wonder of the incarnation. Man's maker was made man, that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, that truth might be accused of false witnesses, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. Some profound thoughts there. Over the next few weeks, we're going to look at various aspects of this incredible truth. And this morning, our theme for today is the promise of the incarnation. That is the fact itself that it happened and how God's plan was revealed throughout the history of Israel and a plan that was established in eternity past. And to do this, I want to look at one specific prophecy about the coming of God the Son in the virgin birth. So uh, please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 7 and we're going to read verses 1 to 17. If you're a visitor here today, uh, you'll note on the back of your news sheet is the outline for today's message. So Isaiah chapter 7, verses 1 to 17. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear-Jashub your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, And do not let your heart be faint because of these two smouldering stubs of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus 
and the head of Damascus is resin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the, God, put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land of those two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. The context of this prophecy sets up a challenge, firstly for King Ahaz, whom Isaiah is uh, directly addressing. But it's a challenge to every single human being. Will we trust in God or will we continue to trust in everything else? Will we depend upon God for our salvation or will we depend upon something else? And it really sets Jesus apart from any other religious person that's walked the planet. And it sets Christianity apart from any other religion. Jesus is God in the flesh. And he is the only way to salvation. And because of this historical fact, because God has become with us, because he has become flesh, it changes everything. If we respond with repentance and faith in the Son, then we will have life. If we continue to respond in disobedience, the incarnation will be a stumbling block that leads us further away from God's grace. So the passage in Isaiah 7 opens with a discussion about the strong arm tactics of the nations. And that's our first point Today, the strong arm tactics of the nations. It reveals ever so clearly that the world has always, always tried to flex its muscles and its power and its authority against the purposes of God. So let me just set the scene for a few moments here. This passage opens up at approximately the year 734 BC. The Assyrian nation is on the resurgence under Tiglath-Pileser III, the location of Israel at this time, as it has always been, is extremely important. If you look on a, a map, it's a geographical location. It is located in a bottleneck, uh, water on one side, desert on the other. And if you control that point, you have access to the north and the south. You have control of the power. 
At that time, the nation of Israel had already been divided into the northern and southern kingdoms. The northern kingdom of Israel, or sometimes referred to as Ephraim, and the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, Israel in the north and some of the other northern nations were concerned about the rise of Assyria. Only 10 years earlier, Assyria had attacked Israel and it was only stopped when they received a substantial cash donation and then the Israelite king, he became a vassal, a puppet uh, to Assyria and he did so in order to strengthen his own power and position. But why be a puppet when you can rule in your own right? And so the current king of Israel, Pekah, he chose to stand and fight. But he was not so stupid to think that he could stand on his own against the might of Assyria. And neither were some of the other uh, kings of the north there. Neither was Rezin, the king of Aram, or Syria, not to be confused with Assyria. So Aram and Israel individually had tried to attack the southern kingdom of Judah and then force them into an alliance. Uh, These events are filled out more substantially in in 2 Kings and then in 2 Chronicles, but they're aptly summarised for us when we read in Isaiah 7 verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not mount an attack against it. So while their individual attempts caused a great deal of damage, they ultimately failed. So what next? What do you do if you can't beat them individually? You join forces. That's what we see in verse 2. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. We stood against one, we stood against another when they came individually. What hope do we have when they come together? The plan of Aram and Israel was to depose King Ahaz and then replace him with their own man, put their own puppet in there. Now, we might wonder, how is it that God didn't do anything to stop these attacks on his people, the people of Judah? But if we look in one of those uh, more detailed summaries of the account uh, in 2 Chronicles, in chapter 28, we see what's really happening here. So you don't need to, to flick over, I'll just read this quickly, but just mark that down, 2 Chronicles 28. We read from verse 1. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father David had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He even made metal images for the Baals, and he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and burned his sons as an offering, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places, and on the hills, and under every green tree." So Ahaz was a horrible king. He was a horrible person. 
but when he had power, that had influence over the entire nation. And his actions brought about the judgment of God upon the whole people. God, we must always remember, is sovereign over all things. And all things happen in line with his will. In his providence, the work of uh, the Arameans and the Israelites to capture Judah is what God would use to judge his people. Listen to verse 5 of 2 Chronicles 28. Therefore the Lord God, sorry, therefore the Lord his God gave him into the hand of the king of Syria, who defeated him and took captive a great number of his people and brought them to Damascus. He was also given into the hand of the king of Israel, who struck him with great force. The amazing thing is that God does not totally allow Judah to be destroyed, even with such an awful king as Ahaz at the realm. The nature of Ahaz's leadership truly sums up what Isaiah records for us in the first five chapters of his book. Uh, While there are a couple of remarkable passages of hope through judgment for the righteous, that is those who live by faith in God, most of the first few chapters of Isaiah are an indictment against the idolatry and immorality and injustice that flow from the people taking their eyes off of God and serving false gods and themselves. Listen to one thing that Isaiah says to the people in verse Sorry, chapter 2, verse 22. He says, Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? What is man compared to God? In chapter 6, with Isaiah's commission, this, this good man, this holy man, is shown just how sinful he is in comparison to the holiness of God. We see that incredible passage where Isaiah walks into the temple and he sees a vision of the Lord and he is completely undone at that moment. Woe is me. And if this is someone who is faithful to God, you can imagine uh, those who are not. This is when the angel takes a, a coal and uses it to burn and cleanse his lips and only by this cleansing is he renewed and then commissioned for his service to God. The book of Isaiah highlights that God's people are to be his faithful servants, but the people fail time and again to do this. And ultimately, that is why we see so many prophetic utterances about Christ, the true servant of God, whose life and death and resurrection would be a substitute for fallen people. And so by trusting in him, we are forgiven our sins and declared righteous before God by Christ's righteousness alone. So Isaiah focuses in on who will we trust? Will we trust in God alone for salvation? Or will we trust in ourselves or in other false gods or be tempted by the strong arm tactics of the nations to trust in their strength? And quit on God. That is the question put to Ahaz by God through Isaiah. Well, against this backdrop of the strong arm tactics of the nations, we are shown clearly the sovereignty of God. 
That's our next point, the sovereignty of God. In verses 3 to 9, God sets up a comparison between the authority of the nations and the authority exhibited by himself. Verse 3, And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sheer Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Now there's two things to note from this verse. The first concerns Isaiah's son, uh, Sheer Jashub. Uh, it means a remnant will return. It could be seen as a judgment upon the nation, that is the nation is going to be diminished to a remnant, but it could also be seen as a hope. Even though the nation is going to be judged, a remnant will survive. And no doubt Isaiah had both of these in mind when he named his son, because we see both of those aspects come out through Isaiah chapter 1-5. to Here is a case of the word of God becoming flesh, isn't it? Isaiah had personified God's message by naming his son according to what God promised to do. As children of God through faith, we need to be aware that sometimes judgment is part of God's plan. We are called to trust him through it. And we should keep doing the things that he has clearly called us to do and to do them faithfully and to trust him with the outcome. So that's the first thing. The second thing we need to to note is about the location that Isaiah is, is called to go and meet with Ahaz. Where is that? It is at the upper pool. Now why? Well, it was not until the reign of Ahaz's son that the, the water supply to the city was actually made underground. So at this point in time, the water supply to the city is above ground and is exposed and could be used by enemies as a way of threatening the lives of the people. You cut off the water supply, you cut off the hope of the people. Now, while that sounds like an important thing to do, you know, the king going out and shoring up his defences, the even greater thing for the king to be doing at this moment of national crisis, the thing that he is not doing is seeking God. But instead of seeking God, this man is out shoring up his defences. He is out trusting in the power of his own strength, his own wisdom, his own resources. And so Isaiah approaches Ahaz with the words the Lord tells him to say from verse 4 onwards. And God sets up a contrast, a comparison for Ahaz. On the one hand, you have these two kings who are threatening you. But who are they really? How are they described? They're described as smouldering stubs. You've driven through a country area after a recent bushfire. Smouldering stubs everywhere. God says to Ahaz, this is what these two are. Nothing. Ashes, smouldering stubs. What used to look good, nothing. They are so little to worry about that I don't even remember the name of the second one. He's just Remaliah's kid. And Remaliah was a nobody. Now, from Ahaz's perspective though, from the perspective of Ahaz's own strength, this is not actually the reality of his foes, is it? 
They are indeed formidable. And there is a good reason that he and the people of Judah should be afraid. He can count the numbers. He can count the strength of arms that is about to come before him. The important thing to understand is that Isaiah is not calling him to look at things from his own perspective, from a human perspective. He's calling him to look from a divine perspective. See, it's not in contrast to Ahaz that Remeli's son is a smouldering stub, but in contrast to God, who is the sovereign Lord. In verse 7, the words for God in the Hebrew are Adonai Yahweh. Adonai means the sovereign one. It's a title. This is the God who is God alone. And Yahweh is the personal name of God, the name that he revealed to Moses in the burning bush, the great I Am. The name that Jesus later declares for himself in the I Am statements recorded in John's Gospel, which is a clear attestation to Jesus' divinity. He and the Father are one. So Isaiah says to Ahaz, Do not fear. Trust in Adonai Yahweh. Trust in sovereign God. For God would not let those kings prevail. In fact, their destiny is set in place. Aram will be destroyed and within 65 years so will Ephraim. The 65 years coincides with the move of the Assyrians to start importing foreigners into the northern kingdom after they'd been defeated. And they intermarried with a few Israelites that were left in the land and they became known as the Samaritans, whom we then encounter in the New Testament. Now, a side note here is that in the past 200 years, there developed a theory that the ten tribes of the northern kingdom were not simply destroyed, uh, but they survived and that they migrated west uh, and eventually settled in Great Britain. And so it goes that the kings and queens of England are actually the descendants of King David. This teaching, uh, known as British Israelism, developed, unsurprisingly, at the height of British imperialism. And then when Britain's power began to subside... Uh, it was further suggested that the northern tribes uh, had not only settled in Great Britain, but in the United States. Now, Scripture affirms nothing of this teaching. God's judgment fell hard upon the northern kingdom of Israel, as made clear by Isaiah's prophetic words in verse 8. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. Now this here is a devastating critique on man's power and authority. We are convinced that we are the masters of our own destiny, but we exercise our choices within the bounds of the sovereignty of God. It has a great deal to challenge us to not rely on our own abilities and strengths, but to trust in God. But it also has a great deal to encourage us when we see the workings of people and nations who conspire against the Lord and his people. We must remember that this all stands in contrast to the sovereign God. Remember the words of Psalm 2. 
Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cause from us. What do things look like from heaven? Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He mocks them at their feeble attempts to think that they are in charge. Only one is in charge. Now in their current national crisis, before this inherently corrupt and immoral king, the sovereign God offers once more a chance to repent and to trust in him, to commit to the Lord and obey him. And how does God finish? He says, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. So it's crystal clear. Trust God. There is no other option. Trust God. Now, Yahweh is not content to leave Ahaz with a call to trust him. He seeks to confirm his promises to Ahaz, and he does that by offering a sign, the sign of Emmanuel. And that's our third and final point, the sign of Emmanuel. But what is offered to begin with as a blessing for the faithful soon becomes a judgment for the unfaithful. Picking up from verse 10. Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. How does Ahaz respond to God's offer? Is his denial, sorry, in his denial, is he actually being genuine? Does he really care about not putting God to the test? Well, it's true, he is quoting from scripture, that's from Deuteronomy 6. But no, it's not from any cleverness, not from any, sorry, not from any genuineness, he is actually being clever, or at least he thinks he is, he's being diplomatic. Remember, the devil himself quoted scripture to Jesus in Matthew 4, but that stemmed out of uh, deceptive motivations. While we're not to put God to the test, it's not wrong for Ahaz to ask God for a sign, since God had verbally commanded him to do so. And here, God lays out an open invitation of such incredible proportions. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. So why is Ahaz not being genuine? Because Ahaz had already decided he was not going to trust in God, but trust in the strength of man. We're told in 2 Kings chapter 16 what happened after Syria and Israel joined forces against Judah. Verse 7, it says, So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Ahaz had already made his own plans. He didn't need God's help for deliverance. Sorry, God, I got this one covered. I'm going to seek Assyria for help. But of course, in doing that, it meant that he didn't have to have himself accountable to God. How often do we see that? 
Isaiah sees straight through this hypocrisy and he rebukes him straight away and he goes ahead and offers a sign anyway. And so at this moment, what could have been a turning point that led to forgiveness and reconciliation to God now turns to a sign that will not only bring judgment to Ahaz's enemies, but to Ahaz as well. Verse 13, Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? And notice in verse 11, it was your God. And now Isaiah says, my God. It's a condemnation upon Ahaz's lack of faith. Isaiah is saying, in effect, the God we worship is clearly not the same. You worship yourself. My God is the living God, the sovereign one. Isaiah continues in verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The sign that God will give to Ahaz as proof that Aram and Israel will be destroyed is the sign of Emmanuel. And it's a very mysterious prophecy. We're not told much about this at all. We're not told anything about who the virgin is. Uh, We're not told who the son is. And we're not told who the father is. But it's clear that when this little one is born... He will not even be old enough to know the difference between right and wrong before everything that God had promised would come to pass. There's several things we need to note from this verse. The first has to do with a controversy regarding the word virgin. Uh, It's been hotly debated and scholars who wish to deny the virgin birth Uh, who fall into the camp of denying all sorts of miracles, uh, they say that the word should be translated as young woman. And of course that has effect for how we understand it in the New Testament. But technical language studies have shown that Isaiah used the Hebrew word, which among all those available to him, most clearly expressed virgin birth. The second thing we need to understand is that in Isaiah... Ahaz's immediate context, the prophecy states nothing about this virgin becoming pregnant outside of the normal fashion. Now, while there are different theories as to how this prophecy was fulfilled for Ahaz, it seems the simplest way forward is just to look into chapter 8. For in there we read about the birth of Isaiah's second son. And there are so many similarities between the two chapters that we'd be hard-pressed to avoid a connection. But we also have to understand that prophecies can be fulfilled in partial ways before they reach their ultimate fulfilment. So within three years of Isaiah's prophecy, when his second son was only a toddler, the Assyrians had defeated Syria and killed King Rezin. Here is a partial fulfilment. But in the following chapters, the words describing the one who would be called Emmanuel show that he would be someone far greater than Isaiah's own son. Here are some key verses that I'm sure we've all been familiar with. Isaiah 9 verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, 
And the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Those titles could not be referring to Isaiah's own son. Isaiah 11, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. This greater fulfillment would be seen in the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this leads us to the significance of this today. Emmanuel means God with us. And this prophecy as we know, is seen by the Gospel writer Matthew. Under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, he saw this to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We read these words in Matthew chapter 1, from verse 20. But after he, that is Joseph, after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. We know that Jesus... God's eternal Son is the Word made flesh. He came into this world in the natural way but by supernatural means because Joseph was not Jesus' biological father. Mary became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the virgin birth is so important. Belief in this is essential to the Christian faith. For if Jesus was not miraculously born of a virgin then he would have been born into original sin, born into the consequences of Adam and Eve's rebellion in the Garden of Eden, consequences that each human is born into. And the virgin birth, the fact that God would become with us, was not plan B when things went wrong. It has always been part of God's plan of redemption. For he planned to redeem his elect people before the creation of the world, and he planned to do so through his elect son. The Apostle Peter tells us in the opening chapter of his first letter, when speaking of Christ, he says, He, that is Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God. If we look briefly through the scriptures, we can see that even if the people did not understand what God was going to do, his plans were embedded in his actions and in his words. Genesis 3 verse 15, God speaking to Adam and Eve says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. In that context, that is directed particularly to the serpent. And it is the promise of one born of a woman who would bring victory over sin and the devil. 
In Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13, the prophet records, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He sees a human being of heavenly origin that would appear on earth and have sovereign authority over all the nations. There are other Old Testament references to the incarnation that we'll look at in the following weeks, but these mentions are enough to show that God's plan to be with us, to come in the flesh, was not haphazard, but was all under his sovereign will. The question remains then, how will we respond to the incarnate one? If we respond with disobedience, choosing to trust in our own greatness or choosing to trust in false gods, then the incarnate God will be a stumbling block to us. We can see that in Isaiah's words to Ahaz in chapter 7 and verse 17. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Ahaz did not trust God and the result would be his destruction. God being with us is not a positive thing if we do not choose to trust him. In that case, his presence will become a stumbling block rather than a sanctuary. Of course, if we respond with repentance and faith, then we will know the joy of life. Judah, the nation, would also be judged, but as Isaiah makes clear, it would not be totally destroyed. God would preserve a remnant, those faithful to him. They would not avoid the catastrophe, but God would preserve them through it. Though we clearly see the strong arm tactics of the nations today. We clearly see that, we just turn on the televisions. Though we see that, we are called to see even more so that the sovereignty of God is by far greater. And we can see the sign of Emmanuel gives us assurance of his authority. So the question is, will we truly trust in God alone? The promise of the incarnation shows that this is indeed the only correct way to respond. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you that uh, it is reliable and true and trustworthy. We think, particularly as we've, we've looked at this prophecy today, that we can see its fulfilment clearly in the arrival of the Lord Jesus. Father, as we, um, we head into this Christmas season, we pray that you would help us to remember these lessons uh, delivered to King Ahaz not to trust in himself or in the strength of others, but to trust in God. Father, we have the hope of uh, your promise to us that Emmanuel would come, that you would be with us, and we see that in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So we pray that you would strengthen our faith in him. We pray that you would help us to look at uh, this world and the things that are going on from a heavenly perspective to recognise your sovereignty over all and that you will bring all your purposes to fulfilment. We thank you, Father, in your Son's precious name.